Anybody that, that plays the agent game at a high level knows that the money is not made on the buy side, it's made on by controlling inventory. So all of our teams control inventory. That's our number one goal. So it's like your brain should be obsessed every day on saying, what inventory can I control? What listing can I get? What investor has a development project they need to unload? Which hard money lenders taking back projects that I can then put on the market, right? Like that's been a big, big thing for us. During the financial crisis, the people that made all the money were the REO agents and the short sale agents. I was just a little late to the REO game because I was a new agent, so I didn't have those relationships to land that, but I played the short sale game at a really high level and I controlled a shitload of inventory playing that game. And I realized every market, there's a way to make money. You just got to figure out where the energy is and then focus on that. Welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Show with Ryan Greenberg and Nick Calpis. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Everyday Millionaire Show. We're here with Rob Chavez and Corey King. Rob is from our, sort of our market up in Virginia. Corey from... Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville, Tennessee. How you doing, guys? Doing awesome, man. Thanks awesome, for having us. Thanks, thanks for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for coming. Rob's a re repeat guest from last BPCon. It's funny, we only see each other when we're thousands of miles away from <laughs> our, <laughs> our home market. Um, so... Rob and Corey are part of, well, Rob started the Grid Network. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Um, what it, you know, what is the Grid Network and, you know, what do you guys do for investors, realtors? Corey, what's Grid? Sure. So Grid is a, I would like to describe it as like a, a wealth building platform, right? Built for investors that operates on a national scale in terms of like a network where there's nearly like 50,000 people and we bring it to a hyper local level at individual communities across the United States. Right. Yeah. Each one is run by a passionate leader that loves real estate investing. They help gather real estate investors. And essentially the reason why they would do it is it's a big funnel for them, right? That that funnel helps them um, generate business in their, you know, in their respective businesses. Um, I've been kind of geeking out on Alex Hermosi's $100 million leads book. And one of the things I realized was, <clears throat> he said, we don't need more leads. What we need are engaged leads. And I realized that everybody that comes to a grid meeting is an engaged lead, right? They get in the car, they drive to the location, they sit down, they participate, they listen, they engage. These are all people that end up becoming clients of ours, right? So it's been one of the best lead gen tools for us for a long time. So is is the grid network geared around having an agent, a licensed realtor run it and then bringing in outsiders who aren't agents but who are just investors to educate them essentially? It's, you know, it's interesting. Um when we first started, it was anybody that was passionate about real estate investing could could lead a grid community. So we had private lender like hard money lenders. We still do have a hard money lender run a community. Um, somebody that runs construction, hardcore investor, agent investor. And then what happened was I started wanting to pour more into my agent investor community and really trying to help them understand how they could use this as a massive wealth building tool. And so I started gearing a lot of our conversation to to help agents become that agent investor and the voice in their local market. But we've since pivoted and said, hey, anybody that's that loves real estate investing, I think the power couple, the power team is typically an agent investor. So an agent that gets the investment game like Corey and myself um, and, and a hardcore investor, right? Um, that kind of like Mark Beckett, my business partner, he's not an agent. 
So I give everybody the perspective of my world as an agent investor, and he gives everybody perspective from his world, which is really like investment and construction. And that, that, that those tif- different perspectives adds a lot of flavor to the room and makes it special. Right. How do you pick markets on where you're going to start your next grid group and how close do you put them together? Like, is there a grid DC and a grid Baltimore or like, how, how do you guys pick that? So we used to think that they would be really geographically focused, right? Like we didn't want like grid groups like on top of each other. We realized after like doing homework around this, you you realize that there's like a Starbucks on every on every corner, right? Um and or CrossFit. Let's look at CrossFit. You might have like multiple CrossFits in one location. And I used to like look down on that. I was like, man, like why would they do that? Well, what we realized is that this is kind of like the best survive in this. And and one CrossFit personality might attract one type of group of people and another CrossFit leader might tra- attract a different group of people. So we started kind of cutting out the geographic boundaries and said anybody that wants to own one or run one, not own one, but like run one in a local uh, area can um, probably best if they're about 30 minutes away from each other because people like you know, don't want to drive more than 30 minutes to go to a, a community. Um, but we, you know, like we run one in Ruston and there's one in Falls Church and Falls Church is only 15 minutes down the road. And we pull a very different crowd than they do in in Falls Church because they're very focused on condo development and like different types of projects. And we work a lot in kind of like that house hacking, Airbnb you know, midterm rental market. So you just find that people gravitate towards the different leaders. That's a great, and that's a great way to think about it too. Cause like originally I'm sure your thought was you can't have them close, but then you start to realize that two different personalities, like you said, are going to attract two different types of people. Yeah. Yeah. Different energy, Mm -hmm. right? Different leaders, different personalities. Some, Some are better than others. Um, yeah, it, it, it was interesting. So so what does it take to start one up and be a leader? Do you vet those people? How does that process look? Yeah. They they apply online, like they'll find us, you know, through word of mouth or kind of like here, you know, bigger the bigger uh, pockets convention. And then they'll apply online and then we're going to we're going to read their bio and we want to know that they're they're actually in the game and that they love real estate investing. We've learned it can't be somebody that has investments and wants to build kind of like a division of their business, they need the, they need the, they need to love it. Kind of like what you guys do. Like you love it. So you talk about it and you're like, it's, it's part of your DNA. We look for people that it's part of their DNA. And if it's part of their DNA, then we're going to give them the framework for how to run an effective meeting at what we call a seventh level meeting, right? In our world, in the world of agenting, right? You can have an agent that does an open house and, you know, they might just put it on the MLS and they show up on the day of the open house and they don't properly market for, for that. And that's called a, like a level one or level two open house. Um, and you could run a grid meeting like that and it will just die. And by the way, most meetups, most investment groups are run like that. Like typically the leader is like, doesn't know what they're going to talk about that night, right? They're like, oh shit, we got a meeting. Like there's no f- structure to it. But when you do a seventh level, you've got food, you've got drink, you've got music, you've got sponsors, you've got video and like these guys in Knoxville have done an unbelievable job. They like raised to the bar. I told them, listen, you got to like, 
do a seventh level event, right? Think of this as a, like a seventh level event. What would that look like? Next thing I know, they're stri- uh, streaming live on Facebook, like professional videography and like badass. It looked, it looked badass. And we're like, shit, we got to up our game and resting because we suck compared to what they just did, right? Corey, are you, are you a licensed agent? Yep. Okay. So I see how it can be beneficial to licensed agents. How can it be beneficial to, let's say, it's just someone who was just investing and not um, actively selling I, I can answer that and you can answer it, right? So for, from an investment standpoint, um, I just bought a house last month, sub two from the group, right? Made $150,000 on that house. And every month I'll do one or two projects that come from members of the group. And think of, you know, if I have 100 people in that room and I'm telling them what I'm looking for, both either as an agent or an investor, you have a hundred bird dogs. You have a hundred people that are like, they're thankful that you're pouring into them and they want to pour back into you, right? And so when you do it properly, it'll bring you whatever you're looking for. The core four that typically benefit the most, property management, construction, investors, and like agent investors. And I would say title, right? Oh, shit. God damn! I got to join this thing. Yeah, yeah. I covered like three of those, uh, yeah. three or four of the things. That's right. Private, but private lending, private money is probably the 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 biggest. Hard money is the biggest, right? The I feel like it's it's funny because in like the the life cycle of a real estate investor, money in, is always the first obstacle or problem, and then you do a couple, and that's the last problem. Like that's there's no problem with finding private money, raising private money. And, and it's it's funny how like you do a couple deals and you're like, now I have no deals and all these lenders that would lend to me. And people don't get that. They're like- You know, you know what's really interesting is um, everybody's always talking tactics, right? How do you wholesale and how do you estimate the renovation and how do you do the reno and how do you do sub twos and all that stuff? When in reality, this is a sales and marketing game and nobody goes hardcore on teaching you like all the sales and marketing of how to actually execute this at a high level, right? So how do you get that telephone to ring? And once it rings, how do you negotiate with the seller? And what do you say and what don't you say, right? Like that is the art of real estate investing is how do you actually put those deals together? You need to understand the tools in the toolbox. That's why we need to learn them. But at the end of the day, this is a sales and marketing game. So if, if somebody's opening up a grid in, in a in a market center, for example, what resources or tools do you give them to properly set up meetings in that market center? Corey, I'll let you go. Yeah, for sure. Um, so grid offers a great like platform in terms of there's already some content pieces like built out. So I don't have to like, you know, free think, you know, what am I going to be talking about? There's already a good content strategy put on there that I can bring in, add my own flavor to it on there. It is, uh, they do a good job of providing the, some of the marketing materials, but then it's up to us ultimately, right. To go take that and execute on it. And so, um, they give us a good background and a good framework to like work off of. And then it's up to each individual community leaders to really just amplify that message to just attract people to their local community. Here's what I realized when I was a a brand new baby investor and I'd go to different investment groups, I found that they would always give me enough information to be dangerous. And then everybody was selling me books and tapes in the back of the room. 
And I remember thinking, I, I just want to go somewhere where people are just like more open and more collaborative, right? And once I understood the game and I understood the gaps of my knowledge of what I needed to learn, I said, okay, if I was a baby brand new investor or any kind of investor, what would I need to know first? I was like, well, I need to understand the game of wholesaling. Like that, like we need to kind of understand what that game looks like and, and why that's actually an important piece, right? And then the next month I might need to understand, well, because I understand what wholesaling is, I, I need to understand now, how do you actually estimate those deals? And like, what's the price that the wholesaler would buy it for? And what's the price that the rehabber would pay for it? And like, I need to conceptually kind of understand that piece. And then next month might be, okay, once I understand that, like how do I make the telephone ring? So that if a deal does come in, I can quickly analyze it just like online. And so I created a curriculum that started with the wholesaling in the beginning of the year and ended with being the bank at the end of the year and all of the knowledge throughout the given months that one knowledge base stacks on another stacks on another so that you feel the full life cycle and learn the full cycle of a real estate investor's life. So kind of mid year towards the end of the year, we're talking about sub twos and lease options, right? Um, so we teach like the creative stuff typically towards the end of the year. This year we did it in the beginning because it's such a hot topic with sub twos and everybody was like, how do I buy like something subject to and time travel? Cause I'm like, Buying sub two is like time travel, right? If you do it right, you're getting a you know a house and a mortgage that I bought one at uh, the end of last year two percent, right? Took one over sub two two percent that had been 15 years like uh, into the amortization schedule. And you're like, how is it that they were at two percent? Like it got modified. The loan got modified at some point, and and so every time I make a mortgage payment, the majority goes to principal. That's like, really good. That's like time travel. Yeah. Right, I bought five that year, that 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 way this year. And I'm like, I never even looked at it that way either. But that's a really good point because you know the farther you are along on the amortization schedule, the be more benefit it is to you, dude. It's like you bought a house five years ago. Mm -hmm. You know how we regret we didn't buy enough. Like at least I do. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I can, right? Yeah. And so we we have strategies, and we we that's the stuff that we teach at the local level, and we help people build their businesses. And does it cost something to join for the people like that are joining? Com completely free. Everything's free. Yeah. Okay. It goes back to like, how do you create a lead magnet that's so good that people would pay for it? Like people right. would pay to come to these meetings, right? right. But we don't. We, we make it free because we realize the relationship is where the value is. People get to know you, like you, and trust you. And we want to get more people to know us, like us, and trust us. No different than what you guys do on a podcast, right? right. Like this is a, a hyper-local neighborhood podcast where everybody – Think of it. And then that's the other thing. These guys have done such a great job of then recording the content and then and then chopping that up into a thousand reels and then pushing it back out, you know, to the marketplace. So it's this flywheel of content, right? I always say, listen, that there's four like the way to really generate business at any level, at a super high level, it's like create content that starts a conversation, that leads to connection, that ultimately leads to the conversion. Right, it's like we call it the four C's model. So it's like great, let's do more of that, and that's what great does for the local leader. So, can we talk a little bit about because I and and if we can't talk about it yet, that's sure. fine. But we were talking in um, the convention today about how you plan on monetizing it because you as mm -hmm. the owner still you can't just do all this stuff for free all the time and grow it to be this massive thing without paying or 
playing, you know, Char- how are you planning on monetizing it if everything's free? So at the, at the local level for the leaders, it's really easy to monetize. Like I'll do well over a million dollars in revenue every year from my group through doing deals, right? So Corey monetizes at the local level by doing deals. Super easy. And by the way, they actually get sponsors at their local level that generates a profit for them. But the real money is in doing deals, right? From the global HQ perspective, um, think of it as no different than like a podcast, right? Once you have a certain amount of listeners, once you have a certain amount of eyeballs, you're running a YouTube channel, once you have a certain amount of audience, then you monetize that through affiliate partnerships and marketing and co-branding partnerships, right? So that's the stage that Grid HQ is at with 35,000 members across 45 different locations. My goal was to get, get us to 100 communities, right? Um, get us to 60,000 members, that are getting our content every single month between the podcasts and all of the, and then, and then you have some buying power, right. To go in and, and start creating these affiliate partnerships. Right. So that, that's how we will monetize it. You, you know, it's interesting. I saw Alex Hermosi interview Dave Ramsey. I saw that you saw that, right? So Dave makes 300 million a year in revenue. You saw that, right? 300 million a year in revenue. Teaching and he fina- spends twenty five dollars a year. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Teaching. Fi- well, remember what what was interesting was forty five percent of all the revenue came from referrals, his referral network. Right. And I was like, okay, we need to take a page out of that book. Right. Um, part of the revenue comes from Financial Peace University. So our equivalent to Financial Peace University is a course that we created called the Income Flip that helps people take their active income and convert it to passive income. And there's a journey in that process. And we developed a system and a model and a journey for that process. So that is our equivalent product to Financial Peace University, right? Eventually, we'll probably do some kind of income flip coaching, right? But that's in the future, right? I'll have another leader that's in whole another business. and So... You guys on are you in you're in Keller Williams, right? Yes. Are you a Keller Williams guy too? And <laughs> so um what does that business right now look like for you guys with the rate environment that we're in and you know, things are things are a little bit tougher, buying power is a little bit less. Like what are you guys doing to stand out, to be different, to uh keep that business running? I can jump to that. So um, for like my team specifically, right, we focus largely on the landlord and the investor markets. And so certainly we take care of our, you know, Jones, Susie, home buyer, seller, like just people from our sphere of influence that would normally want to make a move. And that's going to be driven just from lifestyle changes, right? Death, divorce, job change, job growth. That's what's going to be moving in this market. But where we focus on the, the investor, the landlord, these like one to many relationships, you know, as investors, we're not as influenced by interest rates because we're really just looking at, you know, income potential. What's the equity play I've got in this? What's my long-term gains on it? And someone else ultimately is paying that note. Right. Um, and so by serving that market, we're having a great year. Yeah. Right I mean, now. Corey put 15 properties on under contract himself last month. Right. And, and we, uh, we've are in the DMV area. Like we've, 
we're down 25% compared to this time last year, but last year was crazy. And we're still moving a lot of product because we also focus on the investor market. Mm -hmm. So I remember thinking, because I thought this in my head, I was like, maybe I should sell one or two things and stabilize my stuff, right? And I was like, if I'm thinking this, I guarantee you other landlords and other investors are also thinking this. So I was like, guys, we're just going to call landlords and we're going to be like, hey, are you interested in buying any more? Are you thinking of stabilizing your your asset base like so many other investors? People are like, yeah, I'm thinking about selling one or two of my things just to kind of shore up stuff, just put some dry powder, you know, mm-hmm. in, in you know, to the side. And so we've we've just turned a lot of property that way. But the other thing that we do is we target pre-foreclosures, right? So as the as the market starts shifting, we started getting a lot of calls actually. Like we were like on a lot of the different platforms. So we started getting a lot of calls off of some of those different platforms where people are like, I'm not behind, but I'm going to be behind. And I've got equity in my house. So I'm just going to like liquidate this thing and live the fight another day. And when I start picking up on things like that, we start creating messaging around those things, and then we 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 target. So, are you seeing uh, investors that are buyers slowing down right now, or is it kind of consistent in comparison to last year, for example? In my market, buyers are definitely more hesitant. Investor buyers are definitely more hesitant, right? It's like, how am I going to make these numbers work at nine percent, right? And so, especially when rents have gone down in a lot of markets too. Like, Rents haven't gone down in our market. So but. I just saw the luxury apartments down in Canton, which is like a really nice part of Baltimore. They went, the two bedrooms were like, I think it was uh, 2,800 for a two bedroom, like luxury apartment. And they're down to like 24, 23. And that's a significant <laughs> drop drop in rent. Here's what I tell you. Anybody that, that plays the agent game at a high level knows that the money is not made on the buy side. It's made on by controlling inventory. So all of our teams control inventory. That's our number one goal. So it's like your brain should be obsessed every day on saying, what inventory can I control? What listing can I get? What investor has a development project they need to unload? Which hard money lenders taking back projects that I can then put on the market, right? Like that's been a big big thing for us. And so it's like when you, during the financial crisis, the people that made all the money were the REO agents and the short sale agents. I was just a little late to the REO game because I was a new agent. So I didn't have those relationships to land that, but I played the short sale game at a really high level and I controlled a shitload of inventory playing that game. And I realized every market, there's a way to make money. You just got to figure out where the energy is and then focus on that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Corey, what did you do before real estate? Because you mentioned before that you kind of like leveled up, leveled down at your job. Yeah, you yeah. Hit a ceiling or something. So I, uh, I lived here in Florida, right? And I was a restaurant manager, owner, operator uh, through pretty much all of my 20s. So it was kind of really just what I was all in on. And real estate was a, a side hobby to a degree, right? I bought my first house, house hacked, found a cool little niche in going to auctions here in Florida that would sell cars, boats, tools, collectibles, stuff like that, like, and real estate would pop in there. And I found a cool little side hustle of picking up vacant lots in subdivisions that tanked in the crash. This is like 2010 through 2013. And I could pick up those lots for like 3000 bucks. It was like right between two people's houses. And then I could turn around and go sell them to either person on either side. Cause that was my ideal buyer and bearing like a little Zillow printout, go like knock on their door, send them a letter or something and be like, you know, Zillow says this is worth 10. I thought I was going to build here. The economy sucks, whatever. Sell it to you for eight. 
and could close it almost instantly, like right at the front door. Right. Nice. So that was a cool little, That's like, awesome. take That's that money cool and go back to the next niche. auction, That's go cool. do that again. Mm-hmm. We've and, talked uh, to a lot of people <laughs> and I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. cool. That's so cool. like, that was something fun. I just kind of stumbled upon and did that for a couple of years, just making some cash. And so, um, yeah, I had the restaurant business and really just hit kind of a ceiling of achievement as we just grew and expanded, got to six restaurants and we're big on from promoting within. And so that, that next level would have been that district or like area manager position, but there was two guys ahead of me for that spot. And I just kind of hit a spot where I didn't want to keep doing this for another like seven years to maybe and get the that grind job. Of restaurants yeah. Hard, yeah. It was just, I was, tough. I was like approaching 30 at that point, met my, uh, my now wife while she was in grad school down here and just kind of saw the writing on the wall. Like, you know, I know we're going to end up having a family like this, just lifestyle isn't conducive for that. Um, so I started looking for just other things to get into. And she's from North Carolina originally. And I lived in Tennessee for high school. So I had some familiarity with it. She wanted to move closer. And so that's kind of what just brought us back up that way. It was just like, well, let's just get out of here. Um, I sold a house here in Florida and that gave me basically the cash just start anew and uh and go a different direction because i liked real estate and had worked with a few other agents before and like he'd say it was like one of those things where like well if they could do it like surely i can pull this off too um so yeah which once we moved to knoxville it was just all in on on that for me can you tell us a little bit about the first deal that you bought as an investment property yeah for sure well outside of our i guess my first house here in florida that i, I house hacked um, well, can you talk about that also? Cause a lot of people. Yeah. Interested sure. So in that, that was, uh, that, that home particular here in Florida was 2009 that I bought that. It was on a short sale. Um, and heard about it. It was in the same neighborhood, actually interesting. Uh, my dad lived in at the time. And so heard about it and it was a good deal. Just bought it then. And, uh, I was 22 you know, it was a little bit of like FOMO, I guess I was going through at the time, right? Because a lot of my peers were graduating college or like heading that direction and I didn't go down that path. And so it was a little bit of a, um, I don't know, like an ego trip for me to a degree of like, well, they're coming out of school and like, what do I have to show for myself at the same age? And I'm like, well, I'll just buy a house, right? That was at least like something. If I'm be a hundred grand in debt one way or the other, like, let's just go that way. So I bought a house, um, had two of my buddies moved in with me shortly after that worked at my restaurant. And so that was nice because that just offset the the note that I had. And I did that for like a couple of years, just like saved the cash and just used that to get, and then I got into the uh the lot flipping kind of deal. And um yeah, eventually I ended up selling that place. And that's kind of what ended up letting us move up to Tennessee. So in Tennessee we bought a home there and Turned that into after, I guess we lived there for probably two years and then turned that into our first rental in Tennessee and then just started, you know, picking things up here or there. Right. You became um, obsessed. Yeah. I really just, his, I did. His wife I was like, like, okay, <laughs> stop buying so stop many buying houses. Properties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and so picked up a lot of stuff, honestly, on the MLS. I mean, if anybody says that there's not deals on the MLS, they are crazy because almost everything I've bought has been right off the MLS. I'm sure that might be market specific too. Maybe. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, but I also think a lot of people too, just they, when people say, Oh, there's no deals out there. I'm like, well, how many offers That's a big have one. you made? Because 100%. you know, deals that are sitting on the MLS for three months, like maybe 
that agent just sucks and they didn't tell their client that they should drop the price or they should change the marketing strategy or whatever. And most agents, unfortunately, suck. So, you know, you don't you, deny you, that you get the, you know, you get that, that person that doesn't have your best interests in mind, or maybe they're just not good at their job and the house is just sitting and sitting and sitting and you just, you just make offers. The house I had uh, that I bought down in Tampa was originally listed for over, it was like almost $800,000 or originally it was over $800,000 when the rates were really low. Then it sat, I made an offer for, I think like 650 or six, no, 630 um, in December. Didn't get it. They basically told me like kick rocks. They, the agent called my agent down here in March and was like, hey, like this house is still sitting. It fell on a contract twice. There was this, that, the other thing, whatever. We ended up buying it for 645, seller financed. I only put 75K down, seller financed the thing, 15 year note, 30 year M. And that was just because we made an offer and just waited and didn't, you know. And I think the people that are really trying to buy need to start making offers or find an agent that's willing to write a bunch of offers. And it's, it's, that's what you got to do. Like, yeah, they just, are on the MLS. Yeah, they are. You just got to take the swing. Baby. Yeah, you just got to take the swing. There's plenty of people out there that are, you know, sitting, waiting, hoping that they're going to get this right offer. They're going to move this. Uh, or get this person moving out from California that's going to pay, you know, over asking cash suddenly and don't realize that their home's been sitting. But like, just take the swing. Worst they say is no. And at least they know you've made an offer that you're there. And there's plenty of people that will say yes. If you're making enough offers, you will get some wins out of that for sure. Yeah. And I want to add to that, like the, another big thing is like, don't be afraid to make a, a low offer. You know, I've done that multiple times on the MLS even when the markets were hot. And it's like, if you're able to get to that fast and get in touch with the agent, I still hold my license for that reason to be able to reach out to the agent quickly, get a contract over as quickly as possible. And then like Ryan said, like, you know, search for houses that have been on the market for three months plus, And those are opportunities there. You know, if, if the seller needs to sell and they're sitting, maybe they'll accept that lower offer that you're thinking. So I have an interesting thing that we started talking about because Wesley and Dan over there, they have a wholesaling business. And we were talking the other day um, about sales versus marketing and the idea of the are both equally important. Does one is like the chicken or the egg scenario? Like, does one come first? Can you do one without the other? What are your guys' thoughts on that? You know, it's funny. I heard Gary V say sales is just bad marketing. Did you guys hear that? Like, it's just like, he's like, um, sales is just like, you're not good anymore. Like you get to the point where it's like, you have to then verbally, you know, influence. And it's like good marketing just takes care of that's, selling. Yeah, that's right? what I said. We were having this discussion yesterday and that's what I said. I said, if I had to choose between marketing and sales, marketing will outlive sales because if you have good marketing, it'll just, you know, keep keep going. And When, when, you're, sell really, when you're really good at telling the story and putting people through a funnel, right, where they get to know you, like you, and trust you in that funnel, it, it, it closes the sale. But so many of us, like, I know that this is something that I'm, I'm still working on, like getting really good at, um, you know, we rely on kind of the, the, the influence of sales side, right. Cause that's how we learned. It's like sell, 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 sell. Right. Um, this conversation reminds me of like, you guys probably saw the interview between Grant Cardone and, um, and, uh, what's his name? The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it was like, Grant was all about marketing and Jordan was all about selling, right? And the truth is, 
It's a combo of those two, right? It's like great marketing puts them through the funnel and then making sure that you know what to say, saying the right thing helps with the conversion of all of that, right? But if I was to choose, right? If I was to choose, I'd say, become a great marketer and it makes everything else easier, right? Become a great storyteller and makes everything easier. I mean, you guys know this, like the power of having these discussions, if people listen to you long enough and then they want to do business with you, like there is no selling that's there. They're already pre-sold because they, uh, your values have lined up with their values and um, it removes all the friction that's there. It's like trust transference happens. By the way, his business partner, Justin, our business partner that he runs grid with and, and our, uh, and our agent location, uh, Kaza Knoxville says grid is a, a, a trust transfer vehicle. And I was like, that's totally true, right? Like a podcast is a trust transference vehicle. A book is that, right? So I default to, to marketing and yet I grew up in an environment where it was all about like ABC, baby, right? Always be closing. That was the, the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, like, you know, golden leads. I'm a little bit older than you guys. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so do you, Corey, you work on Rob's team? Yeah, I run his expansion team in Knoxville. Nice. Okay, that's cool. So how many agents do you have now, Rob? 30 some on. Okay. Right? And so what we, so really I want to clarify, he doesn't work on my team. He is my business partner in the Knoxville location. He owns 50% of that location with us, right? So we build business partners. So think of it as like a holding comp, like we, you know, own a holding company. And one of the assets that that holding company owns is Grid Knoxville. And we own 50% of that, right? So we're business partners. And we, we have five teams like that, that are under that structure. And then we have four additional businesses that are also under that holding company, right? Construction, you met my business partner, Mark, private lending, uh, wholesaling business, right? Um, property management, right? Do you have an agent count goal? I want every one of our expansion teams to have no less than five agents and probably no more than 10. It's kind of like a sweet spot for profitability, right? Um, five is easy to manage a team of five. 10 starts getting more complex. After 10, people start getting lost. You start losing a little bit of the culture. Um, there's the whole military concept of span and control, right? It's like, I'm a leader and I pour into my five and those five each have their five and those five have that. That's how span of control operates, right? So what we found when we started analyzing profitability of these like teams uh, and complexity of running them, it's like team between five and 10, very profitable and not difficult to run. Okay. Yeah, it was interesting. We were talking before. I don't know. Were you involved in the conversation? We were talking about the numbers uh, with property management companies and the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was talking to what was his name again? Your the construction guy that we were talking. Mark. Mark. Yeah. Um, so as I'm, you know, analyzing um, this property management company, the owner is like really, really smart guy, um, accountant type, math. You know, really good with math and numbers. And he basically said, you know, in his uh, property management company had 250 units. It was 
relatively the most profitable it's been. Now it has over 750 units and the percentage, you know, obviously it's making more money globally, but the percentage is a lot smaller in profit. And he's saying that now he's basically at a point where he's got to get to like 1100 units to be that profitable again. And it's, it's an interesting thing that I kept kind of never, I was not trained in business or anything like that. So hearing somebody talk about that, you know, like how, like, how does that make sense? But it, you know, it does like he had 250 units and, and he's saying he's making more than when he has 750 yeah. units, yeah. but it's kind of the same thing. The yeah. economies of scale. I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll, in our speak, I'll, I'll meaning on the agent side, I'll kind of clean that up a little bit or like, let me just kind of put a period on that because you're 100% right. When we analyze the property management business, my, my business partner said, listen, the best profit we're going to make just looking at the spreadsheet is going to be between like 200 and 250 units. And then after that, then we have to decide, do we actually want to make it bigger because your level of complexity goes up, your profit margin is going to come down and you're going to have to push through a different level. It's going to be painful, right? So do we want to build little team, little property management teams that all do like 200, 250 and keep the, le like, keep the level of complexity down, right? Um, or do you want to kind of like scale that up in one location, right? The interesting thing that I learned as we started building multiple teams was that while the individual team is like really profitable between five and 10 agents, right? For the global company, you need to have a lot of those to make money, right? And um, that's where I was like, shit, like for us to really make the money that I want to make, I've got to, just like your, your friend, I've got to push through and get the 20 offices. And then I'm like, okay, but that's a whole different level of complexity. And then, and then, but what happens is when you start getting into those numbers, you start becoming really valuable to, um, um, uh, financial institutions, right? They, they now will value your business at a higher multiple because they realize that you've, you kind of crack the ceiling in the small business and you're now, you've got some economies of scale that are there. So it would behoove your friend to push through to the next level if he's like looking for one, like a bigger buyer or, you know. Well, that's what we're talking about me potentially, you know, we're merging, potentially merging our companies together and that will kind of bring us closer to that number. Um, because together you might be more valuable Right. Well, basically, like when he was, I don't know that I don't want to say the exact numbers, but when you take the if our combined businesses now and you sell it and then you or, or we add another 100 units or 200 units, which is like 10 percent growth, the value goes up so incredibly. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. like the value you can go up 10 percent in, in doors or, you know, assets under management, but the profitability could double or more, which is like kind of, um, you know, it's hard to kind of fathom that, but it's, I guess, you know, multiples of profit. Yeah, and, and, but not only that, like the, the value of that overall business might go from like a, a three type, like three X multiple, and it might now sell at a six X multiple, right? Because the larger, the, there's institutions out there that want to buy businesses like these, but they just don't want to buy a bunch of small ones. Right. What they want is to be able to go in and take a bite of a larger one because they need to deploy capital and get a yield on that capital. Right. And so, um, 
there is an argument to, to try to go for and build the bigger thing, but you have to ask yourself, do you want to, do you really want to do that? Right. I had to, I had to look at myself and be like, I was like, I'm, I'm freaking pot committed. Like I've got it build a bigger thing. Right. So, I mean, I guess I didn't have to, right. I'm like, we're, we're do- like, one of the things was, I'm like, we're already because of our investments, like we're good. Right. But from a, a, like wanting to build something that I know is, is buildable. Like you guys were in the, um, you guys were in the keynote this morning with yeah. Dave. Oh, I mean, David Osborne, like he was speaking to me directly because he, he literally is like, he's like, you get to a point where you're like, okay, how big can I build this? And it's like, well, as big of a vision that you could actually create in your mind and have a pretty big vision of what's possible, especially leveraging our grid platform. And then you have to decide, okay, am I, am I willing to pay the price or am I willing to do the work to do that when I already know I can go to Costa Rica and hang out, right? And I had to like kind of come to terms with that and said, fuck it, we're going to build it. You know, we're going to build it and make it, make it big because I'm too young to, yeah. you know. That's Even great. though I'm like, so so, how many units do you own right now, Rob? So it's 22 properties, and then I'd probably say like 36 total units because we've got some multis in there, right? Okay. For some reason, I had I I thought you had like a bunch more, but you were buying in like Western Maryland and Cumberland yeah. and all that stuff. So Maybe I had you mix up with somebody. Well, else. I think what happened was we used to own more, and we realized that more isn't better, right? Um, and then probably we had 300 properties under management in that Western Maryland area. That's okay. probably what you're yeah, thinking, yeah, yeah. That right? Could be it. Yep. And that, that was like hell, man. You yeah. know, two hours away from where we lived, um, my wife ran that side of the business and we owned a bunch of duplexes and triplexes and we would sell those properties to investors turnkey. That's how we kind of cut our teeth. And then I realized kind of like the conversation right before we jumped on here where you're like, investors sometimes don't know what their actual true cash flow is, especially in some of those older building ones on paper. They look one way, but like over, you know, over a year or two, you start realizing shit, you know, this five, $600 I think I'm making a month. I'm not because the building's older. It needs a lot of work. Blah, 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 blah. Tenant pool isn't and, great. And right? it's simple math too, but I think investors have like their blinders on because you think about, okay, if I make a net of 500 a month over 12 months, $6,000, and I have to replace that old HVAC system, then I made $0. I made $0. That's, right? that's I, what it is. I feel like a lot of them don't even think about the maintenance, the upkeep. Vacancy. Vacancies. Tur- turnover is a huge expense just going in there and repainting and putting new carpet in, like they don't factor that in. They look at my mortgage is a thousand. I'm renting it out for 1500. I'm cash flowing 500 and that's not the truth. Yeah. Simple math. You know, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we saw a lot, if you're in a, in a cash flow market like that, that doesn't grow. Um, it's painful because you're, like you said, you think you're making 6000 a year, you're making zero, and then 10 years later, that property's still worth the same, right? Because it hasn't benefited from the appreciation of the rest of the United States because it's a dying market. Like, we saw that, so we pulled out of that market. Luckily, we bought, when in 2008, we bought in, when in our area, Nova, when prices were 50% off. So that portfolio is paid off. 
And what we do is we then took an equity line against that paid off portfolio and we turn that money, right? We either lend that money or we use that to, 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 to fund flips that we have. And so that, that became our base. We're like, okay, we're good. Like we've got like these properties that are paid for free and clear. And every month they're going to bring in like $15,000 a month, but we could leverage all of this equity and just turn it with an equity line. Right. Yeah. And that's been, that's been good for us. Nice. And, and then, so you, you talked about lending. Are you also doing some like lending arbitrage, borrowing from others and, and re-lending it out to yeah. investors? Yeah. So we have our line that we took against and we lend that money out and then we arbitrage other people's money, right? We'll find investors at eight and 9% and we'll put that money on the street at 12 and 13%. And, you know, honestly, we're learning that game. That's, you know, our mutual friend helped me get in and understand that business. So that that's a little baby business for us that I think has a lot of potential. Nice. So a question for both of you guys in, in business and in real estate, especially consistency is crucial doing it over and over the repetition, being there, getting up every day. How do you guys keep yourselves accountable for being consistent in your business and, and doing it every day? I'll let you go, Corey, and then yeah. I'll... Um, like, for me, it's beginning with the end in mind. It's, like, always just knowing, like, where I want to go uh, and knowing that it's going to take just showing up. And, so just, and I've just... I guess I've seen it, too, in times that I have fallen off. I mean, I'm not, like, perfect with anything, but, like, in times that I fall off and then get back on and just get like a little bit of momentum going. And then you start seeing the rewards. It gets addicting. You just want to start doing it more and more and more and start showing up again and again. Um, it just takes time and like practice where you just know that you see plenty of other people doing it. And that's just the message you hear is just like consistently showing up. And once you finally actually go put in that time to do it and you start seeing the fruits of your labor, it just gets to be too addicting to not do it. Did you have a hard time um, going from a place where you were working for like another company, your regular job, where you had to get up and go to the restaurant every day to where a job where you don't really need to get up if, you know, you could just lay around? What have you found that to be difficult at all transitioning from that W2 life into um, um, business full time? I doubt that. Yeah, not really. <laughs> Corey wakes up every day and's like. I'm getting Let's shit done go. today. Yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. in that too, because of like where I was, I was the dude. Like I wrote my schedule. I wrote everybody's schedule. I wrote ordering. Like it was my place to operate. And I was fortunate to have some business partners there that largely weren't breathing down my neck to make sure I was reporting here at this day, this time. They knew that as long as the numbers shake out, staff's cool, cool. We don't have a lot of like attrition going on or anything like that. I was free to do my own thing. So I could have those days where I could go in early in the morning, help set some things up a little bit, leave at eight, nine o'clock, go run an errand, come back before like lunch service starts, work for a little while, leave again, go hit a bucket of golf balls or something like that, right? Circle home, shower, shave, go back to the restaurant and work. So I, I liked always working for myself anyway at that point, even though I had like business partners and had that kind of W2 job. Um, yeah, I still just really immensely like, enjoyed the work and the process. And so when I then went and transferred to the agent side of it, it wasn't too much of a change to a degree because like I knew I had to just wake up to make it all happen, right? Everyone was to a degree dependent on me at the last job. And here this was just me like 
I'm dependent on me now to make this happen. And uh, moving to, you know, essentially a new market and not knowing anybody, man, you have to just grind and go for it and just out, uh, I'd say like out producer, just out communicate, right? Compared to the rest of my peers. Cause I'm competing with people that grew up in that market and had a decade's worth of relationships like built and right. And all this thing. And like, I had to find a way to like, how do I have a decade's worth of conversations inside of a year? Cause I've got to really close that gap in order to actually survive. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'll say it a little bit different way, but it was like, um, freedom was one of my biggest motivators. I'm like, what price am I willing to pay for freedom? And I'm like, any price. Yeah. The one thing I don't want to be is a slave to a wage, slave to something I don't want to do, and I'm willing to friggin' grind to make that happen. And um, and so I I got up every day, and I make that ha- like I made it happen. Um, I wrestled in college, and like I had that D1 kind of like, if you're the best in the world, the best in the world, get up. They train when other people are sleeping. They, you know, are obsessing about it constantly. They're using visualization to win. And I was like, it's no different like in business. And um, and honestly, I think Corey and I are kind of cut from the same cloth. We, we Like the problem with that sometimes is like, you know, Dan Sullivan wrote, wrote the book, um, The Gap and the Gain, right? It's like sometimes when you have that kind of mentality, like it's never good enough, right? You're always like, yeah, but there's another thing and there's another hill to conquer and there's, right? And and so we have to, you know, as we grow and build our businesses and realize that we also have to build our lives, right? And we can't break the people around us that we love because as entrepreneurs, like sometimes we break the people around us because we're like obsessed maniacs. So we got to learn how to like, we got to learn how to throttle it back and be present with the fam. Like I, David Osborne talked about that early this morning. I experienced that in my life, right? Like most entrepreneurs that I know, like have experienced something like that because we, we are that rare breed that's willing to bet on ourselves. And because we're willing to bet on ourselves, we're just going to work. Right. And, um, and what you learn as a business owner is that in the beginning, it takes grind, but eventually it takes your brain. Right. And, um, and that's the transition. And a lot of people, don't make that transition super well. They don't know how to become a leader in the business. And so that that's one of the things that we work on all the time is like, Corey, how do we take your self-employed job and convert it into a business, right? Where the business works to fund your life instead of you working in the business, right? And most small business owners are the business, yeah. right? And um, so anyhow, um, freedom was kind of what helped motivate me. Yeah. And I think That's a brave a heart. What about uh, you, Ryan? You haven't, you've asked a lot of guests that question, but you haven't answered that one. The reason, one of the reasons I'm, I guess I'm interested in that question is because when I, so I was a teacher for nine years and started my business while teaching. And then I started slowly. Um, I took, I was doing four days a week of teaching and then I was three days a week of teaching and then stopped, you know, ultimately stopped teaching and, um, had to, f- I was so used to that schedule. I wake up, go to the gym, go to school, you know, coach or do whatever else I was doing. Um, then I went to having no schedule and like I was used to my business kind of 
operating not not all that well I found out while I was at school every day and when I came you know to be full time in the business I found a lot of the inefficiencies and issues and stuff like that but I had to figure out my schedule that was the thing that screwed me up I think in the beginning is that I didn't have that that schedule and it's not like I wasn't doing like lazy things but I just didn't have the like the structure right away so now I've kind of like fell into a routine, not like even purposely, but I wake up, I go to the gym, I, I answer my emails first, I go to the gym, and after the gym, I you know I head to the office or I check on my projects and I head to the office, um, and that has that's helped me a lot with just staying consistent. But in the beginning, I was I just find myself like. I want to do something. I want to work, <laughs> but I don't know what the next thing that yeah. I should be doing because yeah. normally I would just be at school and somebody would call me and say that there's the basement that's flooded and I would just like walk out in the hallway and call the plumber. And, you know, like I was just so used to being there and doing that. And now it's like, well, what do I do now? You know, I had a gift handed to me like pretty early. Like I was, I like, I had a W2 job when I was in college. But I never like I like I was self employed pretty much like right out of college, right? And um I'd started this recruiting business and my friend was a natural recruiter. He was badass. He'd worked at a recruiting company before. He's like, I think I'm gonna start a recruiting business. I'm like, if you start that, I'll come join you, right? But we didn't know what we were twenty three, we didn't know what we were doing, right? And that year I put together enough, you know, deals to kind of like pay my bills when like we didn't make a whole lot of money. And we went to this training called Morgan Methodology Training Methodology of Training. And that, like we talked about sales or marketing, that was a this is how the sales game is played. And what that did was it gave me a system. And what I realized was I played a game of math. And the game was in that business, 20 interviews a month seven new job orders, 14 send outs. Like he's like, if you stick to this math every month and all your goal, your goal is just to hit this math kind of like you might say, Hey, how many offers are you going to make this month? Right. If you just stick to the math, it's like, I promise you your production will go through the roof. So I was like, I'm young and dumb. And I'm like, I'm just going to stick to the math. Right. So every day I would just kind of be like, okay, how many interviews did I get? What's my gap for the month and how many send outs and how many new job orders. And that next year I produced like billings, which is similar to like commissions of $310,000. Right. And, um, and so I made a good six-figure income that next year, like at 24. And I was like, oh, okay, I get this game. It's just a game of math. Activity, right? Input gives you output. So I was like, the more input, the more output. And I was like, well, you know, my wrestler mentality is more push-ups, right? So more calls, more activity. So I learned the activity game and was super focused on just hitting the activity. And the activity produced everything. And by the way, that is how you fire up the engine in any business, right? Whether you're a wholesaler or you're an agent or you're a hard money lender, it's the same frigging game. It's like, what's the math? But once you understand that, what I call level two, like in this framework that I teach, then you get so good at production that you start losing your life a little bit because you're 
like in the week, like doing all the deals. You're like your phone's blowing up, your dinner, like you're negotiating contracts. So you're a good producer, but you're a bad business person. So the next level you've got to learn is how do I become a business person, right? And that becomes part of the part of the journey. The reason why most investors fail or most agents fail is that nobody educated them on the math in the beginning to fire up the machine. Once the machine is going, here's the thing. Once the machine's going, you just got to keep that steady coal going into it, right? You don't have to burn too hot. You don't like, you just keep, just get the coal in there, right? And your brand, right, over time, doing the right thing, being consistent, always showing up is like a leverage lever for you. Everything becomes easier over time because of all the good seeds that you sow. Right. And, and so people look at you and say, dude, it's so easy for you. And you're like, yeah, cause I've done it for 20 freaking years. <laughs> right. I paid a lot of dues in the beginning to make that happen. And then I just did the right thing over time. And so, but consistency is a superpower. Yeah, it is. Nick, you got anything else for our guests here? No, but I appreciate you guys coming and I appreciate you being on again for the second time. Well, guys, thank you. This is it's great. The second time we just kind of, bombarded you and uh yeah. like hey can Last you come do a year, podcast it was literally like i think we ran down and who was it russell that, i think it was russell, russell he's like you gotta get rob on we went over to you you're like let's do it let's do it man yep. i'm never gonna you know in some random conference room at the event i love that you know here's what i love i love the hustle right like one of my what i love about what we do what entrepreneurs do is that it reveals like ingenuity, hustle, like all the things that make this country great, right? So here we are, right, doing a podcast in Orlando. You guys are just love it, man. Like everything, yeah. everything I bought. Yeah, I love about it. Well, so, appreciate you guys. We'll be uh, seeing you around this week, and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Next time, thanks, thanks.